I haven't been out here in several years. Um, the first time I came, the church was celebrating its 15th uh, anniversary. And to put in perspective how long ago that was, when I came, they gave us a little bag, and in it, it had a VHS tape of the church's founding and history. And I still have it. It's, uh, it's comical. But uh, we, uh, we attended the leadership conference that year, and we're just so blessed by it. It was absolutely phenomenal. The spirit of the services were electric. Uh, we were so encouraged and challenged to reach souls, as you still are, and we were challenged to do a work for Christ in the place where we live. And now, some 16 years later, things have certainly changed. Uh, there's an entirely new generation that's come here to train and to learn. I'm thankful for that. And though I don't know you, I don't know you personally, I don't have to know you to love you, and I do love you, and I want you to succeed and to do well. And so my prayer for you is that you will be just as zealous for God, that you will be just as committed to, uh, to godliness and truth as they were in those days. If you'll do that, the Lord will use you in a wonderful way. And again, I realize that I don't know you. You and I don't know each other very well at all. We come from different parts of the country. Are there any other Texans in here this morning? That's what I'm talking about. We'll fix California yet. But anyway, uh, we come from different parts of the country. Of course, we have different uh, experiences, perhaps even different mindsets. I, for example, grew up ranching. Probably there, a few of you have uh, been in that environment. I was, we broke and trained horses and worked and doctored cattle and uh, dehorning and all kinds of things that we did there. And, uh, of course, I still love wearing cowboy boots. I don't even own a pair of shoes. And so, uh, and I doubt that many of you uh, would share my personal tastes, and that's fine. But what we do share is something far more important. It's far more important. John said, if you turn to Revelation chapter 1, you didn't turn there now, but John said that we share an interest in the blood of Jesus Christ. We share an interest in, in the blood of Jesus Christ wherein he washed us, the Bible says, and cleansed us, and by which he made us kings and priests unto our God. He said further that we are brothers and companions in tribulation. We're in this together, friends. And so while we may not have much in common on the surface, but at the deepest and most meaningful level, we're united by faith and by hope in his soon return. And so I trust that that will bridge any gap that might otherwise exist between us. Something else that unites us is our appreciation for the Word of God. Like you, I love the Bible. I love the Bible. There is such weight, such beauty, and such complexity in it. And yet at the same time, it's amazing, isn't it, how simple the Bible really is. Here we have something as profound as the eternal word of the living God, and yet more often than not, even when it comes in very elegant wrapping, it boils down to the simple truths that we all learned in Sunday school growing up. And so <clears throat> the fact of the matter is that the principles that we need for successful living are generally not nearly as complicated as people want to make them. This is a very simple book, and therefore I love the Bible. But on top of my love for the Bible, I love preaching. There is such life-changing power in it, and that's one reason that it's such an incredible responsibility to handle the Word of God 
and to try to do it accurately, to try to do it as the author intended it. And personally, uh, I like to preach, depending on the genre, I either preach plot by plot or strophe by strophe or pericope by pericope, whatever you want to call it. Uh, But I like to do that, preaching the thought units at a time through the scriptures. I I think that that's the best way to preach. And, of course, in my tenure, I have preached through numerous books of the Bible. And I've tried to give a thorough and robust accounting of basically every word. In my opinion, that's the best way to consistently handle the sacred text. I don't want them to follow my opinions, but to know what the Bible itself has to say. And one thing, however, that often gets omitted in that kind of preaching is what I would call the bird's eye view, the 35,000 foot view. You, you miss that. We spend so much time hacking our way through the trees that we seldom have time or take the time to climb one of those trees and then to gaze out at the forest. And I bring these points up this morning because they're both relevant to this particular message. You see, rather than giving a microscopic analysis of the text, I want us to back up and I want to give a telescopic synthesis of several texts. And to be sure, I won't be offering anything very novel or complicated. But if I can stir up your pure minds by putting you in, some remem- in remembrance of some simple things that you already know, then our time together will not have been wasted. If you have your Bible, please open to the book of the Revelation in chapter number 2. Revelation chapter number 2. I'm in the habit of standing for the reading of God's Word. If you're not in the habit, would you please join me? Let's stand together. Revelation chapter 2. Verse number 1. Jesus says, and unto the angel, that would be the pastor of the church of Ephesus, this is what I want you to write. Jesus says, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Skip down, please, to verse number 12. And unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, his throne. Verse 14. But I have a few things against thee. Skip down to verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. Verse 19, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. And the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Skip forward to chapter 3 and verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Skip forward to verse 14. 
And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, verse 15, I know thy works, verse 17. Thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, brethren, I want to be very sensitive to the text. I never want to read into it something that's not legitimately there. But it would appear that Jesus has a serious problem with these churches. Is that fair? Jesus has a serious problem with these churches. I think that he does. And so if the Lord will help me this morning, I want to preach a message on the subject of chameleon Christianity. Chameleon Christianity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. I'm very thankful uh, to be here. God, I'm very thankful for your word. And it's life-changing truth. And God, none of us would be here apart from it. And so I pray that you'd give our minds the ability to absorb what you're communicating through these texts. First of all, to understand it. But second of all, God, to embrace it. Lord, it's one thing to know. It's something else to do. And I pray that you'll help us to do both. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. <clears throat> The letters to the seven churches are, of course, well-worn territory for most of us. I've already preached through them a number of times in my short tenure in the pastorate. And so I would imagine that among this crowd, their themes are as familiar as the sights on our streets. Ephesus deals with lost love, a crippling disability that replaces warm spirituality with cold orthodoxy. The letter to Pergamos, by contrast, urges a church that is trapped in, in hell's headquarters where Satan's seat is, the very throne of the devil. They were trapped there in hell's headquarters and he's urging them to champion truth and to fight for purity. The letter to Thyatira concerns the issue of holiness on which they had compromised and were tolerating the seductive teaching of that evil woman, Jezebel. Sardis, as you know, had a reputation for life, but the reality didn't match. The truth is, she was on life support, just barely hanging on. And of course, we know all too well the story of the, of the Laodiceans. The church there had riches and prominence, everything but a heart for God. Truth be told, she was as tepid as yesterday's bathwater. But the point is, each church was unique. Each church had its own set of individual problems. And yet in another way, a very important way, a very profound way, their problems were all very much the same. Now, I would like to be able to make a case for that statement based on all seven churches, but for the sake of time... I'm simply going to show you the pattern that arrested my attention from three churches. Now, I want to start in chapter 2 and verse 18 with the church in Thyatira. Now, until Rome came to power, you can look at me, I'll tell you when to look at the text. Until Rome came to power, Thyatira was a terrible place to live. It's situated, if you've never been there, it's situated on an open plain. It has no natural defenses. And thus, whenever war broke out, as it frequently did, 
Thyatira was always the first casualty. Excavations there show repeated evidence of it being sacked, burned, rebuilt, sacked, burned, rebuilt, so on and so forth. Nevertheless, when Rome took over, the stable conditions of the Pax Romana began to favor its growth. And that growth was driven in large measure by the fact that Rome stationed a garrison there. It was a sprawling military base that required tradesmen from literally every quarter uh, of their empire. So people from Egypt and Persia, Lydia and Mysia, Macedonia and so on were all stationed there, all came there uh, for work. And as you can well imagine, that many different cultures, that many different backgrounds are very difficult to meld together. It's very hard for them to find cohesion. One of the only ways to do it in that day as well as in this day is through something as powerful as religion. And that was the case there. And, but again, as their superstitions were all unique, it required them to embrace something that we know today as religious syncretism. Religious syncretism is simply the fusion of different beliefs and different practices. Now, by the time of John's writing here, the population in Thyatira had apparently become very adept at this because the local god there, who was held to be the, the guardian and the supporter of their various trade guilds, was formerly called Helios Pythias Tyramenaeus Apollo, which is a title reflecting no less than five different cultural influences that had all been blended together. So now this god has a little bit of influence from this group of people and another uh, influence from that group of people and another from another group of people. There's five major cultural influences that have gone into the name and to their perception of this uh, so-called deity. Another example, uh, even their coins show this mindset, for example, uh, one in particular, one of their coins, has the city goddess on one side and the word homonia on the other side, which denotes the internal harmony of the parts. And so what I want you to see here is that in Thyatira, this blending, this religious syncretism was the preferred path to civic harmony. This is the way we get everybody to get along. This religious syncretism, it was the way to reconcile the otherwise different and disparate elements of the population. And so because of that, it is not at all surprising to read here in verse number 20, that they had a woman who was called Jezebel, who was teaching and seducing church members, if you'll notice it says, to commit fornication and to eat things that were sacrificed unto idols. So just as Jezebel of old had made idolatry acceptable in Israel, this woman was teaching the church that if they were going to make it in Thyatira, if they were going to get along in this culture, then they were going to have to compromise a little. After all, she said, the spirit doesn't want to crash our careers. He's not in here to, to harm us and to, and to ruin our lives. So if we have to eat meat that's offered to Apollo, or if we have to participate sexually in his feast to keep our jobs, so what? You do what you have to do to get along. So is everybody following me in this? This is religious syncretism. She was teaching religious syncretism in the church. Now, of course, that's bad. Can somebody agree with that? That's bad. I don't think that's a shock to us. That's very, very bad. However, they should have expected that kind of pressure. 
They should have expected these kinds of things because they lived in a city where that was the motto. This should not have come as a surprise or a shock to them. And the truth be told, friends, that's not why the church got in trouble. That's not why they got in trouble. Look in verse number 20. They got in trouble because they suffered her to teach that garbage within the church. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to see that this church had so imbibed, they had drunk so deeply at the fountain of this cultural and religious mindset that they were now reflecting that mindset in the church itself. They were doing this that was going on outside. In the very house of God, in the very pillar and the ground of the truth, they weren't just tolerating, they were mimicking the religious syncretism of their city. Friends, it's no wonder Jesus rebuked them. Because the truth is, when a church becomes more like its society than it is like its Savior, then it has neglected its purpose and it should be in trouble. Say amen right there. When a church becomes more like its society than it is like its Savior, it has neglected its purpose and it ought to be in trouble. In that same vein, let's consider the city of Sardis. If you've forgotten the details, let me briefly remind you of her history. Sardis was an ancient city founded a full millennium before the Roman Empire. For most of that time, she served as the rich and the powerful and the strategic capital of the massive Lydian kingdom. Whoever controlled Sardis controlled the western third of modern Turkey. And in this role, Sardis was, was preeminent. And although she had a history of frequent wars, through her repeated victories, she had earned a reputation as the first, the number one, the leading city, the leading metropolis in all of Asia, all of Lydia, in fact, in all of Hellenism. And perhaps the most obvious reason for her long-standing supremacy was her physical situation. Despite being located in the fertile, uh, a fertile river basin, she boasted a massive, I mean a massive fortified Acropolis, towering 1,500 feet over the yawning expanse below. You can picture it in your mind. It's like a villain's mountain lair in a movie. Sheer cliff faces protected the fortress on all sides, save one narrow, uh, winding, and very steep ascent to the top. It was so secure that opposing armies considered Sardis to be literally impregnable. She cannot be sacked. However, the very feature which kept it secure also limited its growth. And so as times progressed and the town expanded, then this lofty plateau on which the city was situated was now deemed to be too small to serve as the capital and a lower city in the valley was built to take its place. And almost overnight, just like that, the impregnable fortress started to wane as a functioning part of daily life until over time, like antiques in a museum, it came to be viewed as little more than a historical artifact, a remnant from a bygone day. Unfortunately, without the Acropolis, there was very little left about the city to commend it. Although Sardis was once the greatest city in the area, by John's time, it had but the faint glow 
of its former glory. In fact, according to Sir William Ramsey, the famed Scottish archaeologist, by the time the Romans controlled it, Sardis was almost like a city of the past. He says it was a relic of the period of barbaric warfare which lived rather on its ancient prestige than on its suitability to present conditions. So friends, here was a once legendary community that had withered and was now dying on the vine. I don't know about you, but when I learned that, when I read that piece of information, I thought, how ironic. What a coincidence that the very thing that had happened to the city was happening to the church. They were living off their former glory. And you can see it very clearly in verse number one. Jesus said they had a name, they had a reputation. People looked at them and thought, oh, this is, a, this is awesome, this church is amazing. They had a reputation for life. But the truth was very different. The fact was, they were as dead as the nails in a coffin. But then I thought, you know, wait a second, maybe that's not a fluke. Maybe that's not a coincidence. Maybe it's not a strange coincidence that the church had developed the very same problem as the town in which she were founded. Perhaps like the air that they breathed, the Sardian Christians had taken in and were now mimicking the mindset and reflecting the attitude of the culture around them. And all sarcasm aside, that's almost certainly what was happening. They weren't standing for holiness. They weren't guarding the truth and championing the truth. According to verse 4, there were only a handful that hadn't defiled their garments. Everybody listening this morning, there's only a handful of them that were still living for God and doing the right thing. Both in attitude and in lifestyle, the congregation had become a mirror reflection of their culture. And so again, it's little wonder that Jesus had not found their works perfect before God. Friends, this was a tragedy because when a church becomes more like its city than it is like its Lord, it not only neglects its purpose, it surrenders its influence. When a church becomes more like its city than it is like its Lord, it not only neglects its purpose, it surrenders its influence. It doesn't accomplish anything. Now, I'm sure you can already tell where this is going, but humor me for a second, and let's turn over our attention briefly to the last church on this list. Laodicea was the most easterly and the southernmost of the seven churches addressed in these letters. Like Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, Laodicea lay along the major trade route heading south, terminating at the Mediterranean Sea. Unlike those other cities, however, Laodicea was situated in the very fertile Lycus Valley Plain through which ran the major east-west trade route as well, the one that carried goods from the interior to the coast at Ephesus some 100 miles away. So basically, if you want to think about it in these terms, Laodicea sat rather square on top of the junction of the two biggest interstates in Asia Minor. It was located in a heavily trafficked area where there's lots of commerce. As you can imagine, its location at such a busy intersection made it a thriving commercial hub. So as London is to Europe, or as New York is to America, or Singapore is to Asia, Ray Summers describes it as the banking and financial center of the entire region. This is where all the money flowed. On top of that, it was a flourishing manufacturing base as well. 
The major product that they produced there was a, a widely sought-after wool. It was soft and glossy black in color. This was then woven into a beautiful tunic called the tremita, which was literally worn all over the empire. Everywhere you went, you see these people wearing the tremita. They were so famous for it, in fact, that Laodicea became to be known as Trimitaria, which roughly translates to Tunicville, right? That's where they were. When you looked at the little tag inside your tunic, instead of it saying, H.O. in Mexico, it said, Made in Laodicea. That's where everybody got their stuff. But not only was it a financial and manufacturing powerhouse, there was a, it was famous for its medical school. A famous medical school was located there as well. Believing that uh, complex diseases required complex medicines, the pioneering physicians from Laodicea compounded an eye ointment that contained the so-called Phrygian powder that brought soothing relief and actually cured many uh, eye problems, common vision disorders. So these three elements, commerce, manufacturing and medicine had combined to make Laodicea not only famous, but a fabulously wealthy community as well. It was so affluent, in fact, that following the devastating earthquake in AD 60, which leveled every city in the region, it brought Philadelphia to absolute rubble, knocked every building down. And in spite of that, after the earthquake, the city of Laodicea refused Roman aid for rebuilding. Now, I want you to think about that. All the other cities were only too happy to receive Roman aid. Laodicea said, nah, we got it. Can you imagine the devastating hurricane that just happened in Houston? And the mayor of Houston saying to the federal government, don't sweat it, it's pocket change, we can rebuild. Can you imagine if that happened in L.A., an earthquake that knocked every building down, and Governor Brown saying, forget it, we, got, we can handle it? No way. These people were so rich, they turned down federal aid. Friends, their wealth had made them proud and self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. Now, my friends, if you know anything about the church in Laodicea, it's not hard to see where this is going. Because like a spreading virus... The same spirit of self-sufficiency that had infected the town had permeated the church and infused it with an arrogant smugness. Oh, friends, it's not a supreme irony that the church would audit itself and conclude, hey, we're rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. When the truth was they were poor and blind and naked, according to verse 17. Friends, it's not a fantastic coincidence. In this case, as in Sardis and as in Thyatira, yea, as in all the letters, the spirit of the town was being reflected. It was being mimicked uh, in, in the, the spirit of the town was being mimicked in the attitude of the church. But brethren, I think it should go without saying this morning that Jesus Christ did not leave us on this earth to reflect our culture. He left us on this earth to correct our culture. Amen. And that's why over and over and over he says to these churches, I have somewhat against thee. I have not found thy works perfect before God. And all oh, my friends this morning, we must not be swept to see in the foaming tides of cultural imitation because when a church does that when a church becomes more like its culture than it is like its Christ it neglects its purpose it surrenders its influence and it's, if it's not corrected very soon it will forfeit its place Jesus said I will spew thee 
out of my mouth. A church that gets caught up in that will very soon cease to exist, at least as a legitimate entity representing Christ. And therefore, like an anchor, we must be moored to the rock of truth so that we reflect not the culture, but this book. Not the attitudes and influences and the whims and the directions that the broader culture is going, but what Jesus Christ says is right in His Word. Anything else is chameleon Christianity. And whether in Sardis or Laodicea or in the churches that we pastor and lead, we will get in trouble with Jesus if we conform but fail to transform the culture around us. Now, I don't want to go to seed on this this morning, but let me make a few obvious applications, can I? And since I live in Texas, let's pick on cowboy churches. Has anyone here ever heard of a cowboy church? A few of you. Just so that we're clear, a cowboy church is a... Um, um, it's a seeker-sensitive church where they, they will preach from horseback. They call it the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> After church or even during church, they have a roping arena outside and everybody comes, brings their horse trailers and they ride and rope and talk about God or whatever they do. And charity prevents me from calling these the most idiotic things I've ever seen. But I will say that it makes no sense to me that the organizing principle, or I would say the common denominator, the glue, it makes no sense to me that the glue that should hold a congregation together should have anything whatsoever to do with our personal hobbies, should have anything whatsoever to do with our personal interest or lifestyle. Are you kidding me? I don't know what your language you're used to hearing here, but that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That makes no sense at all. I mean, if that's, if that's the case, should, if, we should, if we're going to build our churches uh, like that, should we organize them around our favorite football team? Well, welcome to the Oakland Raiders Fans Church. I mean, especially we shouldn't do that. But anyway, you know, I, that, that's absurd. We don't need a church like that. The whole idea is ridiculous because churches are not intended to reflect their culture. They're not intended to reflect the people that go there. They're not intended to reflect the attitudes and the lifestyles and the interests and the hobbies of the people that go there. That's not what they're there for. They're not intended to reflect their culture. They're intended to correct their culture. And in fact, if you want to know where this mindset leads, all you have to do is look at Catholicism. Because they don't stand for truth at all, do they? They don't stand for truth. They're a mirror reflection of whatever society they go into. Which is why the Catholics in India look very different than the Catholics in Ireland. Which is why they look very different than the Catholics in New York and the Catholics in Texas and the Catholics in Mexico. Because they are a mirror reflection of the society that they go into. Now, but now hold on a second, please. Those examples of cowboy churches and Catholicism, they're kind of like pinatas. They're very inviting to beat on. But the truth is, friends, that Catholics and cowboy churches are the only ones that struggle with this. Are they? No, they're not. For example, in the North Texas Metroplex where I live, I'm sure it's not this way out here, 
But we're saturated with the entertainment culture. No one, that doesn't happen in California, does it? We're saturated with the entertainment culture, music, sports, the arts. You can't get away from it. And nor do people want to. They crave it. They crave it in every part of their life. And of course, that's not inherently bad. There's nothing wrong with music or sports or the arts. But astonishingly, that entertainment mindset has crept into, in fact, it's been welcomed into our churches as well. And look, friends, I'm not for making church boring. I personally think it's a crime to bore people with the Word of God and to, to uh, cause them not to want to come to church or be interested in religious things uh, because of that. But I can take you into so-called Baptist church after so-called Baptist church after so-called Baptist church where it is nothing like, I said it's nothing like an authentic worship service to a holy God. Instead, for the kids, it's more like Fun Zone at McDonald's. And for the parents, you know exactly what it's like. It's just another concert. A second-rate knockoff rock band. And you know what I'm talking about. The congregation doesn't participate in worship as much as they watch it being performed in front of them. And because they do, it trains the congregation to approach church like a consumer with an entertainment mindset. I'm not there to actually worship God. I'm there to watch this other team worship for me in my presence. It trains them to think like a consumer. And as a result, that's exactly what they do. They go church shopping at, after church after church, looking for the place where they'll be most entertained and where their kids will have uh, the best amenities and all of these kinds of things. And you can see it in the pulpit as well. The cultural paradigm, think with me about the methods that are used. The cultural paradigm, particularly that of Hollywood, and I'm not just mentioning Hollywood for amen button, but if you'll think about how they do things, they try to persuade, they try to get their points across using things like comedy or parody or they try to communicate using emotional stories, either because their points are so trivial or because they can't stand the heat of serious scrutiny. And that's fine. Look, that's what I would expect from them. But what gets me is that when the concert is over and these pastors of these so-called Baptist churches finally do get up to speak, so often they too are doing more of a religious comedy act than they are heralding a timeless message of conviction. And that is terrible. They have embraced Hollywood techniques because in large measure they've accepted the Hollywood paradigm. And so it's no wonder that so many people will come to me. They'll come to our church and they'll say, man, preacher, we haven't heard preaching like that in years. And we haven't seen a church like that in years. And your people were so friendly and we love things. It was, just, uh, it was just refreshing to kind of see them. But really what we're looking for is... And then they fill in the blank with something that has no resemblance to Bible Christianity whatsoever. But why should I expect anything different? They've been trained that church is just a religious reflection of the entertainment culture at large. They've been trained to view it in that particular way. And therefore, I should expect them to have that mindset. It's exactly what they do. Friends, we need to wake up and get back to our calling. We need to wake up and get back to what we're supposed to be doing. And I'm going to tell you this. This affects everything. 
We'll end up with some of these churches at youth rallies. Our young people will end up with some of these churches at places like camp. And I will see, I go with them, and I will see not just the worldliest styles of dress, but I'm talking hair that would make the 80s cringe. I'm talking about everything from skinny jeans and man bonds to mohawks and dreadlocks. And by the way, not just on the bus kids they bring. I think it's a travesty if you go to church and there's not somebody there that is obviously out of place because they've just been saved. It ought to be filled with those kind of people. But you ought not leave them like that. I'm all for the come as you are for those who are lost, but I'm not for leaving them that way. Jesus doesn't do that. He transforms. And you'll see this not just on the bus kids, but you'll see this on the church kids as well. It's unbelievable. I look at that and I think to myself, we have steeped so long in the cultural kettle that now we taste just like it. And believe me, I've heard all the excuses. Please don't look up here and say, wow, you know, you just don't know what it's like. Yeah, because, you know, we just got iPhones in Texas last week. No, friends, we have all the same things that you have here. We're no different than anybody else. And yet people will tell me, well, you know, you, come on, preacher. You, I mean, you can you could get away with that. Your philosophy, that kind of preaching, that might go over good in Oklahoma. That might work in Kansas. But here in the Metroplex, I mean, things are just different here. And I want to say, really? Really? Is it really different? Or is it simply that you've embraced chameleon Christianity? We have capitulated to the culture to the point that we are no longer correcting it. We're simply reflecting it. We need to wake up and get back to what Jesus called us to do. Now the question might be asked, okay preacher, I'm with you, I see where you're going. But how do you recommend that we correct the culture? Well, that's a good question. And to answer it, I would simply refer you back to the seven letters. Because as you know, every church didn't get in trouble with Jesus. There were two that actually received his commendation. Philadelphia and Smyrna. Now, I don't have time to go into all of their background, and of course, y'all don't need me to. In Smyrna, the Christians weren't just sacrificing they were suffering because they refused to conform. They refused to be swept along where the winds of culture were blowing. They refused to bend. They refused to conform. They refused to compromise, in their case, in order to join the trade guilds. And their day, if you didn't do these certain acts and go along with these certain religious mindsets, then you could not work in that town. And they refused. They would not bend or compromise in order to join those trades guilds. They had counted the cost and they refused to bend even when it meant terrible hardship. Philadelphia, on the other hand, was, we call it the church of the open door. A church where God had given them the opportunity to reach out and to evangelize. They were a soul-winning, evangelizing church, and they were going out and transforming their culture, evangelizing their culture instead of being evangelized by it. And so this morning, I would just say that if we don't want to be in trouble with Jesus, if you want to avoid chameleon Christianity, 
But we can't break. We can't even bend. We're going to have to embrace the conflict. You need to get to the point where you expect the fight and you're ready for it. Embrace the conflict and then advance the gospel. These are the two things that are needed today. A, a steel spine that is willing to embrace the conflict and then advance, advance, advance the gospel. Someone says, that's it? Well, well that was simple. Yeah. I told you this is stuff we learned in Sunday school. But if Jesus thought it was important enough to mention time after time after time, then perhaps it's something of which we need reminding often as well. Perhaps it's something that as pastors or administrators or as future Christian leaders, we should think over real hard, real carefully to make sure that we're not making the same mistake that Laodicea made. If you look in chapter 3 and verse 17, you'll find that they had looked at their church They had looked at their church. They had uh, taken inventory. They did a a self-audit. And when they looked at their church, they thought, man, everything is great here. We're awesome. Look at how God is blessing. This is amazing. They thought everything was going fine, and they were shocked that Jesus Christ did not agree. And it could be That our church, our ministry, our life reflects a lot more of the culture than we realize. Now friends, if it's not that way, then you ought to be very grateful. But beyond that, you may need to examine what difference you're really making. What difference, if any, are you or your church really making in the world? Are you personally advancing the gospel? I know the church is soul winning. I said, are you personally advancing the gospel? If not, or not as much as you should, then why don't we take this time to renew our commitments? Why don't we come at this invitation and say, God, help me not to conform. Oh, God, help me to transform my culture.